If you're new or newer, thanks for stopping by to visit. I hope that in the moments that you've already been here in the space that you have been encouraged. Uh, I wanted to start with a true confession. My true confession is just simply this. I have a lot of useless knowledge in my head from things like song lyrics to sports stats to movie quotes to just some really random weird knowledge that I'm not sure why it's in there, but it just happens to be in there. Things like the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog. That uses every single letter in the alphabet. Or things like, I know that Mr. Rogers, one of my favorite characters growing up, he was an ordained Presbyterian minister. Samuel L. Jackson, before he became the man in pretty much every movie he's in, was actually a cheerleader. Or I know that uh, if you're an average American, you will spend six months of your life at red lights. Now, this bit of knowledge was just dropped on me, so now it's forever in, in, uh, in my head, is uh, Yo Banana Boy, that can go forwards or backwards, spells the same thing. I just think that's awesome. Yo Banana Boy, either way it works. Now, when I consider all of this knowledge in my head about things like Ohio State or Chipotle or song lyrics or sports or just weird random facts, I can say with all honesty, none of that knowledge has actually made a bit of difference in my life. I don't think that would be surprising or shocking to anyone, but I think what is surprising and even maybe shocking uh, is that we continue to fill our heads with knowledge of things that just don't make a bit of difference in our lives and who we are. Now, I'm not suggesting or even saying that having knowledge is a bad thing. I think it's an okay thing. But the question that I've been thinking a lot about uh, since we began our journey through the story of Exodus is this question. Is there a knowledge to be had that leads to true transformation? Is there a knowledge that we can have that would lead to true transformation in our lives? Now, over the next uh, few weeks, we're going to be looking at the 10 plagues that devastated and destroyed the nation of Egypt. And my hope and my aim is not just to study these plagues and learn, uh, in order to just learn random knowledge about frogs and and gnats and boils and hailstorms. Rather, over these next few weeks, I want to explore what I think is a more profound and even probing question regarding these plagues. Namely, what's the point? What is the point of each and every one of these plagues? The question of what was God really trying to accomplish with each of these plagues? Now, thankfully, I'm really glad that we don't have to have any guesswork here because God actually makes crystal clear to all of us with each plague what he's actually seeking to accomplish. In short, the plagues actually answer a question that Pharaoh, who was the leader of the nation of Egypt, asked Moses. Now, if you were to go back a few chapters in our story in Exodus chapter 5, when Moses first comes and confronts Pharaoh and says, God has told me, he's met with me, he's told me to tell you to let his people go. This is Pharaoh's response. And who is the Lord? Why should I listen to him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. That was Pharaoh's question. Who is God? Who is the Lord that I should pay attention to anything that he has to say to me? I don't know God, and I'm certainly not going to listen to him. 
So each plague reveals who God is. Each plague reveals what God is like. So the point of each plague is that Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt would have absolute knowledge as to who the one true God actually is. Now, clearly, God is very concerned with setting the people free after 400 years of just brutal enslavement. But if that was his only concern, then there is no need for the plagues because God can just take his people, transport them from where they are to where he ultimately wants them to be. And so the fact that God doesn't actually do that reminds us that there's something bigger at stake. There's something bigger at play here with each of these 10 plagues. But the plagues are not just about Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt having knowledge of God. The plagues are also about Moses and the people of God knowing rightly who God is and what God is like. Keep in mind, 400 years. 400 years that the people of God have been in brutal enslavement. So we're talking about generations of people who need to be reminded of who God is and what God is like. Now, as we've been walking through Exodus so far, we've been confronted with a man named Moses, a man who thought God had completely given up on him. We have been confronted with the people of God who thought that God had just completely abandoned them. And then we've been introduced to the leader of Egypt, Pharaoh, who honestly thought he was one of the gods. And so these plagues that we're going to walk through are intended to help all people. Moses, the people of God, Pharaoh, the entire nation of Egypt, and honestly, the entire known world have knowledge of who God is, knowledge of his character, knowledge of his justice, knowledge of his holiness, knowledge of his mercy, knowledge of his love, knowledge of his power. And it's meant to be a knowledge that would lead to a transformed people, meaning a people that would honor God, would glorify God, would worship God, would love God above all things. Now, let me just stop and ask more of a personal question for each of us here. How is what you know of God changing who you are and how you live? All of us here at some level, maybe differing degrees of knowledge of God, but we all have some degree of knowledge of God. So how is what you know of God, how you know Him to be, know what He is like, how is it changing you? How is the knowledge that you have impacting, shaping the life that you live? I think this is a hard question because if we're being honest, I'm guessing we can all point to areas in our life that are probably not completely consistent with how we live, but yet how we know who we know God to be. For example, we know that God is sovereign, but yet we still try to control people. We still try to control situations and circumstances. We know that God is gracious and forgiving and compassionate, but yet we still are plagued with things like guilt and shame. We know that God is unconditional, but yet we still can live our lives trying to perform for God in hopes that maybe God will love us or like us more, or we think that even though we believe He's unconditional, that there's things that we can do that might somehow make Him love us less. We know that God owns all things, but yet we battle to be generous to give away what He's graciously given to us. Or we believe that God is all-powerful, 
but yet we still struggle with things like fear and anxiety and worry. Now, some of that disconnect can just honestly come from our hearts that we have hardened our hearts towards God. We just do what we want to do because we think what God wants us to do is not as good. So we've hardened our hearts to say, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. For some, it might not be necessarily a hardened heart, but that disconnect between how we live and who we know God to be might stem from just choosing to believe things about God that are just not true. I just don't believe that He's good, or I don't believe that He's loving. I believe He's holding out on me. Either way, whether it's the disconnect comes from a heart that we've hardened, or we believe lies about God, not knowing God rightly always leads to missing God completely. Not knowing God rightly always leads to missing God completely. Two characters are going to be predominant, front and center, in the plagues. Now, obviously, there's more people and more characters involved, but there are two characters that are primarily front and center for us, one who had growing knowledge of God, that would be Moses, and one who had the opportunity to continually know God, but just refused to acknowledge that God is God, that would be Pharaoh. Now, for the remainder of today, I just want to focus in on Moses, and I want to specifically take a look at where his knowledge of God led him. One of the notes that I wrote down in my journal this week is knowing God leads to obeying God. That when you have knowledge of God, it will lead to obeying God. We pick up the story in Exodus chapter 7, starting at verse 6. Moses and Aaron are back in Egypt, and they're now confronting Pharaoh. It says in verse 6, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded them. Moses was 80 years old. And Aaron was 83 when they made their demands to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Pharaoh will demand, show me a miracle. When he does this, say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down in front of Pharaoh and it will become a serpent. And so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, did what the Lord had commanded them. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials and it became a serpent. Now, it would be very easy uh, just to read those few verses and miss what I'm just going to call a monumental moment that took place in Moses' life right here. Something changed for this man. Something switched in his heart and his head, because in verse 10, it says this, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, did what the Lord had commanded them. Seems simple, but yet for the very first time, Moses obeys God completely without whining, without grumbling, without complaining. It simply says he did exactly what the Lord had commanded him to do. What a moment that must have been when Moses instructed his big brother Aaron to throw his staff on the ground. Now, this is my thinking stick. I just like when I need to be deep in thought, just kind of walking around, I just need something in my hand to kind of hold and and twirl around. I just like to have this. So I'm going to pretend that this is my Moses uh, rod or stick that he had. If it's me in this story, I'm thinking I'm just going to just put my stick on the ground and pray as I shoot it off. 
please turn into a serpent. Please turn into a serpent. Like that's the level of faith I would have in that story. But what I love about what Moses does for his brother Aaron, he instructs Aaron, Aaron, throw your staff on the ground. And this moment of throw it down on the ground right in front of Pharaoh. And I love, as it says in the text, verse 10, Aaron threw his staff before Pharaoh, his officials, and it became a serpent. Now, as I've thought about this scene, what it must have been like for Moses, one of the notes that I wrote in my journal this week was this, obedience to God leads to seeing God be God. Obedience to God will lead to seeing God be who God actually is. Now, you might not remember this, but this is not the first time Moses' obedience to God resulted in him actually seeing God. You go backwards a little bit in Exodus 4, it says this in this story, when Moses first finds out from God that he's meant to go back to Egypt and he has a responsibility specifically before Pharaoh, and Moses is somewhat freaking out of God, they're not going to listen to me. And this is what God says to Moses. Then the Lord asked him, what is that in your hand? Well, it's a shepherd's staff, Moses replied. Throw it down on the ground, the Lord told him. And so Moses threw down the staff and it turned into a snake, turned into a serpent. Now, what's different here is that this was not Moses' staff. This was God telling Moses, tell your brother to throw down his staff. God is asking Moses to be obedient to him in a new way. And as Moses had seen in times past, his obedience met with God doing what God said he would do. The staff became a serpent. Now, this is not some random parlor trick happening here. God not only wanted Moses and Aaron to know who God is, but he's also, in this moment, he's planting seeds in Pharaoh's heart and mind that he is actually being confronted with knowledge of the one true God. So how is Pharaoh being confronted with a staff turning into a serpent? Well, a staff becoming a snake is a direct attack on Pharaoh's sovereignty. Egyptians, they were fascinated with the snake. They worshipped the snake. But they also were terrified of snakes because they were so predominant in their culture. This is why Pharaoh used the serpent as a symbol of his royal authority as seen in the ceremonial headdress that he would wear. So the idea for Pharaoh was that you're going to fear me just as you people fear the serpent. So God is taking the very symbol of Pharaoh's power and authority, and he throws it down right in front of him. Now, this is where things, if they haven't been interesting yet, get really interesting. Because as far as we know, God doesn't inform the two brothers, Moses and Aaron, of what's going to happen next. The only orders that they have received is, Moses, tell Aaron, throw your staff on the ground, it will become a serpent and it does. I don't know if they saw what was going to happen next. Verse 11, then Pharaoh called his own wise men, sorcerers, and these Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. They threw down their staffs, which also became serpents. Now, when the Bible talks about secret arts, that is a reference to the demonic. It's a reference to satanic activity taking place. 
So this story reminds us that Satan's power is real, but it is not absolute. He was able to mimic what God did, but he does not have the power to actually create anything. He can only seek to corrupt what God has actually created. Now, I have no idea what's going on in Moses and Aaron's mind in this moment. But again, if it's me, I'm certainly wondering, God, what's up with this? This makes no sense that they can turn a staff into a snake also. Now, they did what God told them to do, but now they are left to watch and wonder, what will God do next? And isn't that how it often works? You do what God asks you to do, sometimes with some level of fear, sometimes some level of trembling out of, will this actually work? And then the results are not always what you anticipated or expected. Just keep in mind this moment for Moses and Aaron. God, we thought there was going to be one serpent on the ground, and now there's multiple serpents. Like, what are we supposed to do with that? We did what you told us to do, and now we see multiple snakes in front of us. What on earth is up with that? And maybe you've experienced this before. Maybe you've experienced that moment where you actually did what God called you to do, and the results were not anywhere close to what you expected or hoped that they would be. Maybe God told you, I want you to talk about me. I want you to share your faith with your coworker, a family member, a spouse. And you did that because God told you to. And then that person that you shared your faith with looked at you like you were crazy. Or maybe... God told you, I want you to reconcile with that person. I want you to do everything you can to restore and reconcile whatever that relationship might be. And you did that because God told you to do that. But then the person you sought to reconcile with looked at you and said, I want nothing to do with you. Or maybe you began praying for someone, a story, a situation, or circumstance because God specifically told you, I want you to start praying for this. And you're like, all right, I'm going to be obedient to do this. And then you look and you're like, nothing changed. Didn't work. Nothing actually happened. Or maybe God's saying, I want you to start giving of yourself. I want you to start pouring out. I want you to start giving of your time and your energy and your efforts and your resources. And you start doing those things because God told you to do those things. And then you look around, you're like, man, everything is now much harder because I started actually doing that. As is often the case, our obedience is met with God doing the unexpected. Not always, but unexpected. But here's the truth that we can always count on. God's unexpected is always the best possible result. God's unexpected. We didn't see it coming. We didn't know it was coming. We didn't think it was going to happen. But God's unexpected is always the best possible result. Because listen to God's unexpected result here in the story of Exodus. Verse 12, but then Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Now, I'm pretty confident that Moses and Aaron, they didn't see that one coming either. But here's the thing. They would never have seen that had they not been willing to be obedient to God's command to throw down the staff and just trust him with the results. And the results that they actually witnessed would have been more than they could have ever imagined, and here's why. Egyptians believed that swallowing something was the way to acquire all of that 
things powers. So when Moses and Aaron's serpent swallows the magician serpents, that would have been a clear message that their power and authority had been completely destroyed by a greater power and authority, namely the authority and power of Yahweh. So Moses' growing knowledge of God, it fueled his obedience to God. And with every step of obedience he took, his knowledge of God continued to grow and grow and grow. One of the things that I often hear a lot is, Michael, I just, I want to, I want to be deeper. I want to grow deeper in my faith. I want to have more knowledge. And what can I do to be deeper? What can I do to attain more knowledge? And by the way, that's, that's a good desire to want to go deeper, to have more knowledge. But please know that if you want to go deeper with God, if you want more knowledge of God, wrote it down like this, knowledge of God will always be discovered on the path of obedience to God. Knowledge of God will always be discovered on the path of obedience to God. Our growth in the knowledge of God will be in direct proportion to our obedience to God, to doing what God asks. Why? Because every step of obedience that we take, we come face to face with the character of God. Every step of obedience that we take, we get to see, experience His goodness, His faithfulness, His provision. As we'll see ten times over with every plague, Moses and Aaron take steps of obedience to God, and with every step that they take, their knowledge of God continued to grow and to grow. Last question I want us to think about is this. Is what you know of God today leading you to obey God? Is what you know of God right now, is it actually leading you to be obedient to do what God is calling you to do? And I want you to think about that, not so much in the macro, big, big picture. I want you to think about how you might answer that question in more of the micro, the day-to-day. Because it's often easy to say to ourselves, you know what, in this upcoming season of time, I'm definitely going to be obedient to do what God wants me to do, but I just first need to get through this current season of time. I need to just handle things. I need to manage things. I just need to get through it. And then on the other side of that season, I will definitely begin to uh, be obedient to what God wants to do. And I want you to know this, obedience is measured in steps, not in seasons of time. Obedience is measured in a step, not in some grandiose, larger season of time. So refusing to take steps of obedience each day will lead to seasons of disobedience. So make this connected here well to the text. What staff is God calling you to just throw down? What step of obedience is God asking you to take? Might the step that God is calling you to take today is just repentance from a heart that you have hardened because you just ultimately want to do what you want to do? Is the step of obedience that God is calling you to take just repenting from a heart that you've hardened? Or maybe the step is repenting from lies that you've chosen to believe about God and who He is. Or maybe the step that God is wanting you to take today is just to step away from just the sinful patterns and habits that you have established over months, if not years. The same sins that you cycle in and out of, whatever the sins might be, God is calling you to take a step of obedience away from those things. Or maybe the step that God is calling you to take is just begin establishing new daily rhythms 
of just enjoying and being with God in prayer, in study of His Word. Maybe the step that He's wanting you to take is to step away from isolation and step towards connection. Repenting from this idea that I can be a lone ranger and do my own thing and actually step into community. Maybe the step is as simple as God saying, it's time for you to start pouring out into other people's lives so that you can begin helping them walk with God. What staff, what step is God calling you to take today? What staff is he calling you to throw down? One of my um, favorite author, uh, pastor is in uh, D.C., and his name is Mark Batterson. He's written many helpful books, encouraging books. And in one of his books, he's talking about obedience to God. And he says this, if you were to always act in your greatest self-interest, you would always obey God. We often live our lives thinking about what is best for us, what's most important for us. So he identified that trend in us. He's not saying that's good, by the way. But he's saying if we are doing that, then the greatest thing that you could do for yourself would always be obedient to God. What step is God asking you to take? And the promise is with every step of obedience you take, you get to see God be God. And your knowledge of God continues to grow as you take steps of obedience to God.